Yeah, brother. There's a lot of people out there talking about us, for us, at us, but seldom with us. So it's time that we get out there and express our voices, share our worldview, and become accountable. Why? Because I am Five Fibs. A podcast that invites free-thinking black men into a shared space for unapologetic conversations about contemporary issues related to self, society, and the world. So join us for these provocative moments. Let's get at it. Welcome to I Am Five Fifths. I'm your co-host, Ahmad Mansoor. And I'm your co-host, Bill Thomason. What's going on, Dollar Bill? Hey, feel more black. We got a special one today, man. My homie from Detroit, uh, Norm Anderson, is going to drop a lot of knowledge on us today on AI, EVs, and all things intellectual. No, I agree, man. I, I think today, <laughs> I guess you could say today, man, we're we're going to have our IQ for this podcast uh, rise a little bit, man. So we're we're uh, we're going to yes, get sir. we're going to get smart today, man. So I'm really yes. excited about this. This background. Is, is incredible, man. So let, let's introduce Norman, Brother Norman Anderson. How you doing? Hello, hello, gentlemen. Uh, good afternoon, Ahmad, and good morning. Uh, good afternoon, Bill. Good hey, to man. The show. Good to hear from you, bro. Well, it's good to hear from you, man. So, I mean, you, you know, Bill and I were both kind of excited about this, man, because your background uh, is pretty incredible. And if you don't mind me just uh, throwing a few things out there just to let our audience know who you are. Um, so Norman is an award-winning entrepreneur, strategist, futurist, and lead enterprise architect in a career that expands three decades. Uh, he has really worked almost in every industry, including banking, utilities, healthcare, uh, higher ed, and fintech, and the automotive industry, you know, where he's been responsible for designing data cloud centers, digital product development, and modernizing technology infrastructures and artificial intelligence. Uh, he is currently uh, one of the uh, lead architects for the, one of the largest uh, automotive uh, manufacturers in the world, helping them bring their dealerships, their electric and autonomous vehicle, vehicles into the future of mobility. He is a graduate of Michigan State University with a BS in computer engineering and physics, wow. And he has an MBA in finance, and he is currently working on his PhD at Carnegie Mellon, where he's focused in on AI. So, Brother Anderson, we have a lot to talk about. How are you doing? How are you, Joe? I'm so honored and um, grateful to be here. This is just a very uh, wonderful opportunity to, to get in front of your, your platform and on your platform and speak to our, our um, audiences that uh, about you know, people like ourselves of the same, you know, elk uh, and what we can do in, in, in terms of uh, amazing things. So I've, I've been, I've lived a blessed life. I've done a lot along the way in terms of the three decades that you've mentioned. Uh, I consider myself like the James Brown of, uh, you know, enterprise architecture and solutioning. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's hard work. And, you know, if you, you can keep your notes, you grind tone and believe in yourself, you can do anything. And uh, that's, that's kind of where I'm at today. Well, man, we're we're gonna have to to uh, put that in big block quotes there, man. The James Brown of enterprise architecture, man. 
Woo, that's powerful. So mm-hmm. let me ask you, I mean, there, there, you know, you don't see a lot of uh, brothers like yourself uh, walking around with such a, um, um, uh, with such a powerful background. How did you get into uh, technology and AI as a profession? You know, um, one of the things is I was a musician when I first started off. I, want, I thought I was going to get into a Boston Conservatory of Music doing arranging, composing, being the next Quincy Jones. Um, my father was like, uh-uh, you, you've got to you know, do something business related. So <laughs> I ended up doing um, something at that time in the, 90, you know, in the 80s and 90s, the advent of technology and the, and the computer was just arising, you know, coming out. And you know, they were going after liberal arts folks. And, and although I had an engineering degree, you know, it just let me see this language that was like music language to say, let me go ahead and use that talent to jump into this space hmm. because now I could start to put my my signature on these these software you know software uh, applications and products that are going to be our future and that's what kind of motivated me. Uh, wow! So obviously, you know, being in college uh, in an engineering program, did you feel that that uh, what's often talked about in our community that sense of uh, onlyness? Uh, in your program? That was interesting because one of the reasons why I selected Michigan State University is because they had cultural um, um, uh, adoption uh, where we had, you know, black aides. And I was like our president of our dorm for our um, vice president of our dorm, I'm sorry, um, for you know, our black, uh, black uh, association of, um, of students. And so, you know, it was a really good community of African-Americans uh, that, you know, really, Got into our culture, and and we 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 evangelized that across different uh, all the dorms and different uh, areas of, of the campus. So it was a lot of togetherness, and in doing so, Nesby National Society of Black Engineers yeah. joined them, and DAPSA was one of the foundational things that kind of helped me to see see our, see our way through um, to help others and to you know because one of the things I always believed in was serving others. And so you jump onto these, you know, these organizations and you learn to serve and serving others to me is a, uh, a really good character as you move forward in uh, the industry, as well as becoming a leader. Sure. So Man. great. Go, Norm. Ahead. Go ahead, Bill. No, I was saying Norm. Great. And, you know, on the last podcast, I talked a little bit about Ken Hill and Dapsep, man. Just give your spin on it, man, because I always said Ken Hill was a visionary. Uh, his goal back in the 70s and 80s was to increase the population of black and brown kids in the engineering fields, man. And I told a little bit, the, I talked a little bit about my experience in the last podcast. Why don't you share yours? Well, mine's comes from the fact that, you know, I, I ended up meeting my goddaughter's um, dad through that stuff. So this is, that tells you the, 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 bond, the bonds that you can have in terms of moving into the DAPSEP space. And as a mentor, to me, Ken Hill was definitely, a, uh, as you said, a visionary. In a, in, a, in a way, he was an architect and futurist of how mm-hmm. to really social engineer and create behaviors that allow leaders to develop. He created a really warm, centric, friendly, learned um, environment for African-Americans to kind of thrive in, in the engineering space, but, or a STEM space, space, as they would call it today. Mm-hmm. And then that STEM space, um, I learned to be a really good mentor, a good human being. And I think I believe the students that were actually involved were actually learning things too. So it was like a bifurcated or two-way path of learning from each other. 
and uh, growing, especially within the STEM space. And then, then re, um, fortifying that with basic skills to understand how to navigate our way to, to graduation and to success in, in future jobs. Ken Hill sounds like a very interesting person, but do, do you you mind sharing who Ken Hill uh, was and also with our audience and also what is that, that is it DATSAP? DAPSAP, DAPSAP. Detroit Area Pre-College Engineering Program. Okay, so that was kind of like a, uh, a, uh, um, a development program for uh, those high potential uh, science and math nerds in the area. <laughs> and we're proud of it too, Ahmad, just to let you know. <laughs> a high potential, uh, that's relative. <laughs> Depends on what Saturday I showed up. <laughs> so Ken Hill was... Ken Hill was an engineer, and uh, Norm, I was he at Ford? I think he was at Ford. And I believe he's still alive today. I really do. And uh, I think he's living in Chicago or New York, but he's got to be in his 80s or 90s. But he, uh, he was an engineer. That's all. He was a regular cat that had gone to school, got an engineering degree, and basically looked around and saw that there were no other black or brown engineers and he just went about a way of changing that. That's and he right. was doing STEM before they was calling it STEM. Gotcha. So, you know, that's interesting because, you know, one of the challenges with uh, science and technology um, when it comes to black males is that there appears not to be a very strong pipeline. Um, what can we do? I mean, should we be doing more of what uh, Ken and Datsap did in terms of creating um, programs that would encourage these young people uh, to get into the field? I mean, uh, um, Norman, you have any suggestions in terms of what we could do to really help create a, a pipeline for young black boys? So I think awareness is one of the other things and doing what we're doing right now, this moment in time, speaking about it out loud and, and being, being confident about it and proud to say it that, hey, there's some STEM programs out here and break it down into, you know, layman's terms for others to find. I found myself at a, a social gathering, maybe right pre-pandemic pre with uh, friends who are physicians, black physicians. I have a lot of friends like that in my, in my space. But the fact is, is that uh, I was talking about a hackathon. And today, hackathons are just normal. By the way, let's get out there, do a 36-hour, uh, yeah. you know, uh, set of innovations on, you know, really serious technologies. And what does that mean? Well, the person, the, the, it was the, there were two. It was a married couple. They were both physicians, black African American. They didn't know what a hackathon was, and they have children. And I said, look, I would be willing to mentor your kids if they if they are into STEM program into these hackathons. So we have to really talk about and kind of like remove the veil so that these things are being st strongly stood up. I mean, I know we like, we love to talk about sports and hey, here's what, you know, here's the NBA, what's going on or the NFL, but you know, we've got to get, you know, move that to the side because, you know, maybe that's 1% of the population that can actually attain and, and meet those type of merits and, and get on those fields of field of play. You got to get, open it up to STEM. You got to open it up so that folks talk to their children about it, expose them to it. Um, I did it with my, my family members, my young niece, you know, she's now an epidemiologist over in Penn State working on that degree in a PhD program. So there's things we can do in terms of awareness of that. And we can't just make ourselves one dimensional. We've got to be multidimensional as we move 
um, as a people across this digital um, platform, you know, this digital transformation of modernization. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, as an educator uh, myself in higher ed, you know, one of the challenges, and it's, it, it's often disappointing, you know, when you see some of the uh, science and tech programs, you know, have a limited pipeline of uh, black men. And one of the things that I often tell people in the community is that um, it's not a, a fix that you make in college, it's something that has to be done early on because, you know, computer science programs are so busy by the time, I mean, they're so crowded by the time that, that uh, a student gets in their sophomore year of, um, of high school, if they do not have the grades and, um, and the performance on, you know, the assessment tests, then their chances of getting into a computer science or any type of computational program uh, becomes uh, very limited. And you know what, Amon, that's another good point you made. Um, let's talk about a little bit about the digital divide and where that's going with that. Because even at the, you know, the school level, um, what we're talking about is that, and I'll, I'll recite a, um, uh, a statistic, uh, Pew Research Center, which studies demographics across different technology divides and whatnot. In 2019, uh, they, they stated that 42 million African-Americans living in the U.S., which 58% of them, about 4, 24 million, on a desktop or laptop. That doesn't really, you know, that's not including connectivity issues in terms of what we call in the, you know, language is a big deal in our space in terms of, you know, uh, information technology and communication, which is all your your Wi-Fi and terrestrial, um, you know, uh, set uh, link-ups to data centers that which they call the cloud. So I mean, we we don't have the connectivity um, in terms of doing that in terms of adaptive learning processes. Adaptive learning being a a methodology for digitally working at you know on a laptop or a desktop and having an intuitive program that understands how you're interacting with that program to learn. Sure, sure. And then you can tailor that to, to, for that student to be, you know, to do better and improve their, their learning capa you know, capability. So Norm, you know, man, when Ahmad and I started this podcast, one of our sole goals was to give a voice to black men. This is really what we want to do is we want to give not only our voice, but give our perspective on things. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, Mod and I have many conversations around how currently the black male voice is being silenced in America. So one of the things that has been always, you know, fascinating to me is how, you know, algorithms and how all of that stuff works around search engines. And I wanted to know if you could just tell the folks, you know, like when a search engine does a search on like black boy, black man, black male, how does that work? How does that actually work in layman's terms? Good, good question. So there's something called metadata, data about the data, where search engines actually are, um, they do, you know, they go through trillions of lines of uh, information like content stores. This is where the term big data comes in. And so you have to have this big data infrastructure uh, like Hadoop or some other framework that allows you to have that kind of, you know, that, you know, petabyte of information that you can crunch through. 
Um, what AI does, so, like, so let me put an AI spin on, if I may, on top of that. It requires a lots of data as input, and it relies on algorithms to process that, da process that data, and then provides an output. And then with luck, it matches the requirements. So if I'm, you know, if I'm uh, in the AI space and I'm doing, for example, I'm doing a mortgage, I'm a, I'm a mortgage lender. I've got a digital presence through a, a, a interface online and I'm looking at your income, property, and asset, uh, asset and credit information. Um, that There's some bots in the background that actually go back to make this streamline, more of a streamline, it's called conversational AI. So it's, it goes, those bots go out and get additional information from you from either internal or external stores that they set up um, subscriberships with, these plans to get additional information on you to answer those questions. The problem with the, you know, that kind of scenario is that with AI, it's all about the data. You know, if you're crunching data, you can have, um, um, let, let me put it in psycho psychological terms. Psychologists today have identified more than 180 human biases. That's a lot. And these biases could seep into your, um, what I call machine learning algorithms for artificial intelligence. And they're done through, you know, either designers creating AI models, which might not have that exposure to cultural, ethnic, ethnic or racial um, um, scenarios in their data. And the fact is that this training data that trains the, the actual machine itself could have bias in it. So the data that's training the, the actual machine for AI uh, could be, have a bias. And so that's where your biases come up in. You know, these search engines, uh, you'll need to have uh, more of a team of designers that represent that's representative of your society, not just a, uh, someone who's, you know, an individual who's extremely smart at building these particular search engines and AI um, algorithms, but some a team of them that represents different aspects, like, you know, you know from the African-American community to your Latino X community, um, you know, Asian, you know, you need that, that diversity in, the, in that group, that team that's actually authoring this and, and looking at this information. So there, it can eliminate those biases. So at the end of the day, people still need to actually manage this. So, for example, I did a little test before we, you know, uh, started our podcast this morning. I put in black boy because I said, I want to see what's the first thing that comes up. And it, black boy, uh, the book by Richard Wright, that came up. So tell me, how does that work? So what happens is, is that, you know, uh, data, there's something called crawlers that goes to, the, you know, the Internet and looks at content. It indexes these crawlers by again, a certain set of uh, index is what? Some made up of certain keys. Uh, so it looks at certain content that's, it, that's indexed on, and mm -hmm. that, that content could be biased. So you might end up getting, and it's also based on the frequency of, 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 of that search. How often is that search entered into that particular uh, mode? Or it could be your browser like Google or something like that. But you know, it starts to look at repetitiveness as well mm -hmm. as going off against certain designated, what they consider sources of truth. But those sources of truth might not be true sources of truth. They can have bias in them. And okay. that's why we need to start taking a second look at all of all this is being designed. And, and from an architecture standpoint, how, you know, what are these contents, these gold sources of information that we can go after and then index on them so that when you hit that you know, black boy 
in a search, you keep a result that's a little bit more culturally um, accepted or understood or actually the truth. Okay, so here's another one. You got Bing, you got Yahoo, you got, you know, what is it, the 800-pound gorilla, Google. What's the difference between any of these search engines? The, uh, the designers and architects behind them. <laughs> okay. Again, all this gets down to the people, the skill okay. set, and their diversity. This cross-cuts all technology. And okay. the problem is technology today we're facing is that we, like Amazon, for example, and I don't want to point out any company because I love Amazon. I love shopping on Amazon and it's helped me through my pandemic. But, you know, 60% of Amazon are males. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a there's an actual in 2015, for example, um, uh, Amazon went to a, a they wanted to automate their um, their their recruiting practices and they want to get you know, away from the, the manual screams of looking at resumes. And so these eight, they took about 10 years of data, but think about that 10 years of data to teach the, the AI, the machines, how to learn to find certain skill sets and identify them. So unfortunately, this was a, a, fail, a fail practice because what happened was they found that in that 10 years of data, it was biased against women, mm -hmm. certain scores and information and metrics in that, you know, again, it gets down to having that diversity. It's essential as we move into the 21st century and start to grow into these artif true artificial intelligence models and what's happening out there. This could happen in our law enforcement agencies with facial recognition systems. Mm -hmm. uh, if the data is not correct and doesn't represent, represent all the people, you're going to get a slice of it and it's going to have a bias. And that's not the machine's fault. It's the people that are actually creating it, you know, authoring that and not allowing the, recruit the true uh, selection of designers and architects and developers to come together and do that work. You know, man, that's a great segue into my next question. And it really is around the ethical concerns around AI. And I just say, uh, i.e. racial profiling. Yeah, good question. So, I mean, that again, I, get, I go back to that law enforcement example of uh, facial recognition systems. Again, big data is behind that. If you don't have the right, correct data sets or data models, which and data models are representations of what the real world looks like. If you don't have that great model, that model in place, along with the data that actually feeds that model, you're going to have misrepresentation. You know, um, I mean, I think there was a man just in uh, a couple of years ago, I'm sure not up on my news on that part, but I know there was a law enforcement identify some man uh, in the suburbs, maybe in the metro Detroit area, and it was, it was, it, he, he was the wrong person. And because there was maybe some bias in the data for that AI to go after it, they went after him instead mm -hmm. <laughs> with clean, clean records. So we've got to be careful how these things are being created um, and who, who's creating them, the authors, the design, designers, the architects that are involved with all of this so that we can have you know, sources of truth that are actually true sources of truth, not just from a mainstream viewpoint, for example, you know, some white Anglo-Saxon Protestant wasp viewpoint. That's if you have diversity. Mod, I think you wanted to ask something in there, man. No, I actually was just going to uh, say amen to <laughs> this. Oh, okay. 
something that he said, he, he had mentioned, he said, hey, look, this is really about the machine, not the, I mean, it's about the people, not the machine. And, you know, I just think that we need to, to, to never lose focus of that because so often, you know, these days, and Norman, I think you agree with me, man, we, we're giving personas to AI, you know, um, you know, we've, we've done that ever since, um, uh, the sixties when, um, I can't remember the name of that movie that introduced, um, the speaking machine when it spoke back, I forget the name of that. Um, but you know, you see in a lot of our narratives and our movies, how we make AI, we turn AI into a persona as though they are totally responsible for, um, for their uh, activities and their behavior. Now, of course, a, with AI, it does learn. Uh, but like you said, that there are people um, who program these things and that's where it starts. Absolutely. I always say that technology is a tool. And when I'm, when I'm mentoring and I'm in, you know, grad students and then you know, who are software engineers to you know, newly formed architects that are coming out in, in our boot camps, um, I talk about technology as a tool. It, and that tool is in the hands of a human being. So we, we have to understand that no matter what generation or time period we're in, whether it's a hammer, <laughs> you know, to, to a, you know, a, um, an, an AI bot, it, that's still a tool. And that tool is being, you know, that, that hammer could be used in a deadly way, correct? I mean, if you, if, you, if it was with right, the hands yeah, of a, a person who's yeah. pretty enraged and, you know, they, you're using it for the wrong, all the wrong purposes, but same thing with these tools that we build today, these digital tools, we have to be careful who we select and put behind them. And then that, and I know that's a very difficult task, you know, something that, you know, it's not easy done, easily done, but I think if you pl apply more diversity to that, I think the less bias you'll get. Well, you know, that talks a little bit about kind of like my lead into my next question, which is, you know, the black male perspective on this industry, because what it sounds like if, and again, this show is about black men and our perspective and how we show up in, in the world. So, you know, not to, ex and I don't want to sound like I'm excluding any other race or any other people, but if, so you're saying in terms of the data, we need more black men involved in that conversation absolutely absolutely okay. I and mean, we need those who are actually can speak speak to it so therefore we have to prepare our black men whether from grammar school up to have that conversation we need to have it in our homes we need to get them prepared with these stem programs so that they you know it's okay for my son to learn stem my black son to learn stem it's okay you know, and uh, the unfortunate part is that we come from an ancestry of people uh, that go back to creating the seven liberal arts and universities. We've given, you know, granted, you know, civilization to the world. And here we are now you know, kind of ignoring our own history where, you know, we were great architects in our own ways with the pyramids and whatnot. I mean, there's amazing things if you look at our history in a way that Very we've true. accomplished and it's part of our DNA. We need to get back to that, that, that presence of mind. Preach, brother. Preach. Absolutely. So, Norman, um, you know, so really what you're talking about, and I thought it was addressed earlier in the in the 2000s when I was involved with it, 
is really the digital divide. Now, back in 2000s, the digital divide meant uh, access to computers and uh, software and how much that kind of made itself into uh, families that gave them equal access to technology. How would you describe the digital div divide today and moving forward as it relates to you know, these new exponential technologies and AI and machine learning. So what, what can we do in order to close that gap? So, you know, what's interesting about that, you, you talked about the early 2000s. Yeah, the digital divide was like having a laptop or a desktop. You're correct. That was just the start of things, you know, to, to who will be the have and have not, especially in the black community, specifically for black males. And then it, came, it grew into connectivity as the internet became more secure and grew to a ubiquitous you know, platform allowing um, your Netflix and uh, Spotify's and um, other digital platforms to start to prevail on that. Uh, and now today you have the mo you know, mobility, which is part of that you know, you know, um, evolution. You've got you know, Blacks and Latinos who have equal shares of mobile device than their, their, as their white counterparts. So, in that space, in the mobility space, we're equal to the white counterparts. But the majority of our African-American Latinos perform what two things based on research studies, like the Pew Research Centers I mentioned earlier. Uh, they perform like job searches and healthcare, and then probably others, maybe gaming and, and chats and things like that. But job searches and access to healthcare is what they're primarily looking for, which tells you a lot about the, you know, what's needed in terms of society for our people in that space, jobs and healthcare. Um, so I would think training and education is essential, but uh, putting it down in the grammar school level up and mm -hmm. evolving it. I actually uh, was uh, on a high school community board where I actually created a program, and a, a, a thematic um, um, schedule of learning. Here's these courses that need to happen. If I wanna take a, a black male from the high school level to maybe a Stanford or MIT. And uh, the principal who I was working with was saying, Norm, we can't find the teachers to teach these kind of courses. And that's enough. So we've got, we've got a whole ecosystem of things that we need to do. We've got to find the teacher, get skill the teachers up and coach them up to coach ourselves up. They say a village is, a, you, know, you know, it takes a, a village to raise, you know, to raise a, a young man, a male, a black male. So we need that village to come together and stop having these fractured conversations and having holistic conversations that brings us together on a common theme of learning that will save our black males in the future. Wow. Well, man, from, from the village perspective, man, I like to think of myself, I'm the village finance and investing dude <laughs> in the village. So, like you know, my, my question Can is- Can I get along? <laughs> <laughs> so, so my question is like, how are we, how do you make money? In this injury, I got to ask that question. How, not only how do you make money, but then add on to that, where is the money to be made in this industry? Well, you know, back in the, you know, as Ahmad was mentioning in the early 2000s, it was based on, hey, I got a laptop and I know I, I, can, I, I can master a couple of applications on it, but that was in 2000. Today, you need to have a basically an orchestration of technologies working together. And you need to learn how to put those technologies in terms of integration to come mm -hmm. up with a solution. And so there's something that Forbes tracks now since 2012 called the API economy. I think, Bill, you and I talked about that offline 
yep. um, and some of them, you know, fireside chats. But yep. API stands for the application programming interface. This is the new economy. And if you don't know about this new economy, yes, there will be a, a huge economic and digital divide. Uh, Forrest tracks this. This is where all your billion dollar companies are coming from. Netflix, I mentioned, Spotify, uh, Fitbit. I mean, and what it happens is that API, the application programming interface, is a, think of it as a digital Lego block. And if you remember mm -hmm. playing with your Lego block as a kid, it had like a square you know, set of um, uh, platform where you could plug all your little uh, Lego blocks into so that you can build a house or a castle or a car. You know, mm -hmm. so these same digital Lego blocks, like, you know, um, this is where Amazon comes from, because Amazon's one of those companies, too, that uses API platforms. It's, it, it allows um, to take order management and an inventory control Lego block, along with a point of sales Lego block. And then now Amazon can jump into the Whole Foods space. Let me buy Whole Foods because I'm pulling these Lego blocks together and building new, new sources of economy and revenue. And that's the same thing, you know, other automotive OEMs are doing. They're taking these digital Lego blocks and building, instead of, you know, combustion vehicles, they're building autonomous vehicles. And they're building electric vehicles through these, you know, these Lego blocks. And it, it helps them move faster, too, to get to speed of market and be more competitive. And there might be some differentiating capabilities that allow them to do other cool things that they won't allow, the, you know, they'll, be keep, they'll keep close to the vest. So if you okay. don't know about this new economy, you, of course, this economy is going on all around you, which it is today. You're going to be in the, in the poorhouse. <laughs> you know, you won't make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And you know what? You, it's going to leave you. And this is not an economic bottle. This is going to be the next 50 years. So in other so words, you can't afford. So in other words, you're not going to be able to afford a $150,000 Tesla. Exactly. Right. And, and that's, you know, so let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Cause man, you know, we both from Detroit, right? And what, what's Detroit known for? The, the motor capital of the world or used to be the motor capital of the world and Motown. So we known for cars and music. So talk right. a little bit about this EV, you know, the evolution of the elect, the electric vehicle. Cause you and I are both looking at EVs right now. I know we've been talking about it. We both yeah. having our eye on that, on that new Mustang. Yeah. That so, Mach-E is really sweet. So <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about that. Like so, the, what does that look like? So, you know, you know, uh, and I'll, I'll be fair about this Tesla and uh, you know, they really spearheaded the movement, but you know, it really started from legislation, the Obama's legislation in terms of, you know, you know, with green, green energy to be, you know, um, self, you know, you know, take ourselves out of combustion, you know, fossil fuels and be more electric vehicle centric by the year 2030. Well, there's a race going on right now. And that race is amongst, you know, you know, GM, Ford, Christ, you know, and, and whatnot, the other domestics and, and internationals to get to the EV market. There's a huge race. Mm -hmm. um, I know Ford is putting up 27 billion or 20, you know, billion dollars, but 2026 uh, wow. to spin, you know, spin, you know, spin up their wheels in the EV market space. And what does that mean? It means that um, these companies are starting to transform themselves, like I said, from brick and mortar companies of the 20th century to mm -hmm. these uh, API econ economy, digital Lego block companies. Uh, they're becoming more software. They're going to be software companies. Why? Because, you know, think about your infotainment systems, um, everything that's connected to the cloud. You know, that it's called over the air 
um, platforms that allow information to get to your vehicle and allows maybe that information to get to a repair service and repair store. So all those platforms come together as a digital Lego blocks to allow to, to uh, sustain a EV, electric vehicle. Now he who actually has the end-to-end um, um, I saw supply chain to get this done will be one of the most dominant players. That means that not only do I have to be able, just like Tesla was a great at designing uh, new electric vehicles in the beginning, you're going to have to uh, be great at mass producing them across the globe through different various markets and countries with different regulations and rules, and then get that out in terms of order fulfillment and logistics to a store or a fleet of vehicles like, you know, a, you know, a national rental car or Hertz or something like that. That's a, those are fleets. And so therefore, an end-to-end ecosystem has to be created. And those that company that actually derives that in the fastest, most efficient way that still follows those digital Lego blocks and allows the digital, digital transformation to occur will be the dominant player. Well, you, so you talk about transformation and it's very interesting that, uh, that both you and Bill do come from uh, the Motor City because that was the center of the industrial revolution in many ways and there's transformation taking place. So with this transformation, obviously you get into an area uh, that I work in and that is related to the future of work. So given this transformation, what type of career should we be steering young black males in? Because uh, you know the job at the auto plant uh, is not going to be there. It will be robots doing that, even though there will be a few technicians there, but roughly, it will be um, uh, robots. So what type of careers, what type of skills uh, do you think that black men should be looking at in order to uh, secure their future? That's a good question. So they really should be trying to, at the, the, the earliest phases of their, their learning to get into computer science. And um, schools need to adapt computer science in a very heavy way. And that means that they start, you know, and there's lots of open, what we call open source or free licensing of allowing you to develop and, and download software so you can build these digital Lego blocks and learn how to use them quickly and efficiently. So we need to start doing that at a very early age. Um, so, so computer science along with, and then you start getting into your domain, what we call domain knowledge is as you learn and grow from high school to college, then what domain you have in terms of healthcare industry or automotive so let's stay with stay with the automotive since you're asking that question i'm a detroiter and that's a big deal we want to get those kids from you know the fifth grade up in terms of understanding having strong computer science backgrounds and abilities to not only have computer science but ability to do look at uh, the analytical and cognitive have cognitive reasoning skills which means i can solve problems let me give you a problem and i can work with a team of people and to, to solve this problem. And maybe that problem can be solved one way, it can be solved in maybe three or four different ways with pros and cons. So we need to have kids understand problem solving is a big part of not just in computer science. I can, I can write code, but it can, you know, can I solve a problem? What problem am I solving? In the yeah. digital transformation age, we're trying to solve problems. The code piece is just your, you know, I hate to sound like this, it's commodity today. Everybody can write code. Absolutely. And, and the reality is, is that AI uh, will come and start coding themselves uh, in that area. And so that's why I was kind of interested in, you know, those careers 
that are along the supply chain of the future. You know, I know big data is big, um, you know, the, yeah, you know. so be a big data is big. Um, AI is huge in terms of machine learning and deep, um, deep, um, deep thinking. So those things are happening as we speak. But they remember, they're skill sets that can actually be added as an aggregate, aggregate up to solve problems. So the more skill sets you have, you can, the, the bigger the problem you can solve. So I would think, you know, in terms of um, you need you need to be have good communication skills and writing skills. That's something that technologists don't typically have, because as I build this thing out, we're not we're no longer building applications. Those are those those are the things of the past. We're taking that, you know, that code and we're making a product out of it. And that means that product has to have security and has to be, you know, has quality assurance. Um, It has to meet the requirements of the consumer. So these pro- software products today is what we're really trying to produce. No longer is applications sitting around doing some functional thing. It's actually a product as that was being produced today. And, pro- and pro- products actually solve consumer product problems. What, how can we make consumer life a little easier, more convenient, or um, what's in demand today for the consumer? Nor here's a challenge that we have, man. You got three cats on and this is a conversation that could probably go on for the rest of the day and i know we have to wrap it up so here's what i want to ask in closing um you know again this is me being um the investor that i am i want to know in your mind what companies or who are going to be on the top of this industry say in the next five to ten years so I, I can't say the companies that will be actually be for me to have a crystal ball like that. I would what? Hold on, man. Hold <laughs> on, man. Okay. Tell you the attributes. But then we can close up now. <laughs> you see, man, that 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 that's a typical investor, man, wanting to that's come right. in, man, and, and find out where the market. That's goes. right. Well, we can wrap up now. <laughs> no, go ahead, man. go ahead, go ahead, man. Well, uh, again, I, I think uh, companies that have um, uh, they have infrastructure that allows. Uh, that, that allows the, their engineers, software engineers and developers and architects to come together collaboratively to deliver faster, much like a like in a plant, which everything has discrete processes. Uh, the same thing is happening now um, in the uh, software um, engineering space where we're building something called DevOps models. These de- development and operations and, and security are actually coming together as where teams, a team of people must support this as one product. So in order to deliver that product, you have to have some kind of assembly line. And so there's numerous products out there that allow you to to deliver on that assembly line, that software or digital Lego block or product to market. And that's when these happen. So companies that are actually changing up to do that first and foremost will be ahead of the game. Um, Companies that are actually aligning their organizations based on, and this is from a business architecture perspective, if you and I've done this for other companies where you have to align your organizations, not to be, hey, I'm the Game of Thrones teams, and let me come up with this cool <laughs> C sharp Python. Yeah. No, I am. I am now. Um, what are you doing with that widget in terms of the market? So organizations are now doing what they call capability, capability design alignment, meaning that I am now part a of a. I am, for example, I am doing uh, mobility for the market. So therefore, let me organize ourselves with mobility people that can look ahead and uh, and 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 deep into the, the mobility space to do that work and then organize the rest of my company as such to kind of complete the rest of the parts 
And if we don't do that from a capability, but they mean what we do for the market, then these companies will get lost. They won't be as what we call agile to move fast. So let me throw one last thing out before we wrap up. You know, um, when I was a kid in the 70s, man, one of my favorite cartoons was the Jetsons. And one of the things I loved about the Jetsons, man, is George could just hop on his little space bike, man, and 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 you know we didn't know it was anti grav grav right he just right. hopped on that bad boy and was floating through the air and then Elroy would jump on his little space scooter and he'd be right behind his old man. I know that there are a lot of companies that are exploring like this different times of mobility, the way we get around, right? Scooters and flying cars and all of that. It, as we close, I'd love to just hear your perspective on maybe. 10 years, you, you, Amad, you can't, you, I can't help it, man. It's in me. I got to find the companies, man. I got to know where the money's going to be. Uh, uh, help us understand maybe like, do you think that company is in existence now? Meaning maybe it's Toyota or Tesla or Ford, and they're going to evolve and they're going to create that. Or do you think that the technology is going to be uh, uh, developed by a company that we haven't even heard of yet. So I think all of the above, actually, I, um, theoretically technology right now, we're in, we're in a great sweet spot for technology to do anything, especially where we have drone technologies to, mm -hmm. and we can now start to retrofit Remember, those digital Lego blocks to say, let me, you know, from a mobility standpoint, I could, I could take those same piece building blocks of digital Lego blocks and make a bike or e-scooter or a meter, but you know, or a ride share. So mm -hmm. again, that's going to allow us to move fast in the next 10 years. And again, all the pieces I told you to, that are in play, those, those kind of like uh, assembly lines that need to deliver those block, those digital blocks will need to be in place. Another thing that might impact this thing adversely would be our legislation in terms of infrastructure. Well, society might not be ready for this. So, you know, legislation and policy, our Congress and Senate needs to pass laws like the Bidens were trying to do is pass this, you know, this trillion dollar infrastructure. Well, I mean, and think about that. Part of that plan could be how we can have meters for charging stations at our homes. Mm -hmm. If you're in a, a brownstone like I live, I don't have a garage. So, mm -hmm. you know, that means I need to have, you know, the city zoning laws need to change so that they could put a meter in front of my house and allow me to park there to, you know, charge up my, v, my, my EV. So there's a lot of things that are hindering upon that. You just can't say, well, it's just because I have something um, out there. It could be, it becomes virtual wear. I mean, I mean, I, I put it on the shelf. This is a great idea, but it ends up on the shelf because if, I, if our, we're not working at all angles or dimensions of our society, like the legislation and governance of it, we're, it's going to fail. So okay. all of us have to be working together. And that's why I mean, this is a collaborative thing. We're all in it together as people, human beings to make this happen. Man, Norm, thank you, brother. This has been incredible. Uh, we really appreciate your insight and your thoughts on this, man. And this, again, yeah, this, thank you. this is a conversation that could probably go on for another two or three hours. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I thought you guys might kick me off forever, but thank you so much. You guys are awesome um, 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 in terms of uh, your show. And I, I, I'm much success to your show. I, I find that this is a platform of the future itself. So I see if anything, your your platform, this podcast, will be there in the next ten years, talking about those new those new technologies in the mobility space, as long along with AI and who's 
doing well, what went. And well, then you always can baseline what I said too and say, Norm, <laughs> I told you so. This is what's going to happen. <laughs> well, you know, as a, as a future, it's a, it's about uh, putting bets on the future. So mm -hmm. uh, we we all have to do it. But I got to tell you. We're excited about it and we're so happy to have you on here to let our audience really get a glimpse of the future and what's possible. So once again, I wanna thank you for joining. I am five fifths. Thank you, brother. That's good advice. Great. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. <laughs>